It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas, Register today at thisisils.org. This Choircast podcast is brought to you by the book, Too Much and Not Enough, Sacred Thoughts Said Out Loud by Karen Schock. This book is for anyone who has big questions about God and is feeling like a misfit among the people who seem to have it all figured out. Journey with me as we dive into the hard stuff and ask the questions no one else seems to want to ask. We will laugh and cry together. You will shake your head along with me as you read the real stories of anxiety and depression, parenting and marriage, and just plain living this life in the messy middle. I don't have all the answers, but my hope in writing this book is that you, the reader, will feel seen. There is a God who is big enough to handle all of our questions and more loving than we can ever imagine. Let's lean into this life together as we learn how to love and be loved in Too Much and Not Enough. Available now on Amazon. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat Turney. I am... uh, Joined, as always, by my much less good-looking older brother, John. Um, and that was rude. I didn't mean much. Okay, let's, let's not much less good. So slightly less good-looking older brother, John. Let's say, yo, 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 what up, G? John. Yo, 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 what up, G? John. I feel like we're playing like a, uh, I was going to say an adult version, but it's not very mature, but a version of like Simon Says, or like, yeah. remember, that, remember that game we used to play with the, it was like a like an electronic Simon Says yep. with the like the red, green, yellow, and blue, and you had to do the like you had to match the patterns. That's, I feel like that's what we're doing here. Only it's uh, not as entertaining, and I, we might be the only ones who laugh. So yeah, anyway, probably. now that I've wasted that much time talking about something completely tangential and silly, uh, welcome to the podcast. This is the this is the thing we call this is not church because as we have come to say very often, if it was church, you would have left by now, and. Uh, we also also like to tag on there that we'd be right there with you. So uh, we have uh, an awesome guest today, and I just want to take a second and introduce her to you, and then we're going to jump into a conversation and see where it takes us. So uh, welcome to the show, Deneen Akers. I hope I said that right. I usually check beforehand. I was just thinking most people have to check, and I'm going to be so impressed, and you got it. Yay! <laughs> so this is an aside before I even get into your into your bio, but I, I, I own a coffee shop, and... Uh, one of these days, I'm going to host what I'm going to call... I might be the first of its kind. It's going to be a, a barista spelling bee. And it's just going to be trying to spell people's names. Because, you know, somebody can come in with the name Emily. And it's like, oh, yeah, E-M-I-L-E-I-G-H. I'm like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> But I get it right more often than I get it wrong. So I don't know. Every once in a while, I, I pronounce someone's name just way off, you know. Um, or we get somebody like Bio Okomolafe who I have to go, okay, say that three times, like, slow, but... Anyway, back to what I was saying. Uh, Deneen Akers loves the gloaming, the time of day when it's starting to grow dark and there's magic in the air. She's also very fond of books, walks in the woods, songs around a campfire, snuggles with her daughters in large pots of hot beverages enjoyed with friends. She is the author of the picture book, Dear Mama God, a warm, wonder-filled prayer of gratitude from a child. Combining stunning illustrations with simple yet profound prayers, Dear Mama God is the perfect children's book to introduce children and their adults to the liberating and heart-expanding world of referring to the divine in feminine form. That's all I have on that. Welcome to the program. So glad Thank to have you. you. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. So where are you at in the world, if you don't mind us asking? Sure. Um, if you'd rather not say, if you want to stay, you know, hidden, that's fine too. But <laughs> <laughs> An undisclosed location. No. <laughs> um, we live a little bit north of Asheville, North Carolina. We've been here. Oh, okay. We've been here since um, a little before the pandemic. We used to be in the San Francisco Bay Area for a really long time, but um, this oh, is wow. home now. So how is that? Is that a huge culture shock being in that part of North Carolina based versus Bay Area? Is, <laughs> or, or is that a silly question? There's definitely some cultural differences. <laughs> you know, we started coming here years ago for a festival called the Wild Goose Festival. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, our documentary that I was chatting pre-recording with John a little bit about Seventh Gay Adventists, which is a documentary that we worked on for many years to share stories of LGBT people from the faith tradition that my husband and I grew up in, screened there in like, I can't remember if it was 2013 or 2014. And it was just amazing for us. It was a real, really important part of our faith shift deconstruction process is recognizing that there were there were people out there who called themselves Christians who, you know, cared about justice and had expansive views on all kinds of things. I called it Woodstock for progressive Christians. Nice. <laughs> I've heard other people call it burning man with clothes on. <laughs> so uh, I've never been to burning man, so I can't say. Um, I have friends who've been and I feel like it's a little bit tamer than that, but it is a like a big festival of music, art, song. Um And so we started going there and met, you know, met people. And eventually, when we needed to find a place that was a little bit more friendly to documentary filmmaker and writer um, budgets, (laughs) we we felt like this region could could have some good community possibilities and be home. And in a strange way, we were never expecting to stay here through the summer. I was like, I'm not going to stay through that summer heat. And then the pandemic happened and we just didn't go anywhere for two years. (laughs) And we acclimated and I really love it. Um, my parents were like the ones who got out of Dodge and went as far away as possible. So I grew up in San Diego. But actually, all of their family are like Georgia, Tennessee, West Virginia, North Carolina. So in a strange way, I felt like my my DNA felt like it was at home or something. Like it was, it was been an interesting experience of really settling in here and feeling feeling more connected to a place than I really ever have. It's amazing that even in some of these red states, and I live in a decidedly red state, I, I, I live in Texas. So, But it is interesting to find that inside of these red states, you can come across some of these little pockets of, uh, of open-minded, thoughtful people. So we, when we get overwhelmed with the, the redness of our state, we go to Austin <laughs> and we just go, well, sometimes just to soak up the weirdness of it and go, yes, okay, there are people here who are more like us. This is great. There's a, so the, the tatted, dreaded out, you know, pierced people that we like. And uh, Asheville, I, I like Asheville and Austin have a lot in common, I think. I, I think, yeah, I think you're, I've not been to that part of North Carolina. The only part of North Carolina has been on the, like on the coast. But we had, we found that we just came back from, uh, I just came back from a uh, weekend in Nashville. And I feel like Nashville is kind of like that, you know, because Tennessee is Tennessee, <laughs> you know, but, you know, we were like, you know, okay, this is, Nashville is a little, it's a little different. You know, there's a, the words you used are exactly what I would use. A little more expansive, a little more inclusive, a little more, you know, open-minded about living and letting people live the way they want to live and not feeling the need to meddle in everyone's freaking business, which is evangelicalism's main, uh, seems to be like their main hang-up anymore, is not content to live their own lives. They've got to go and reach out and tell you how to live yours as well. So With, with religious conviction, which makes it the scariest of all. Right. <laughs> That is that is scaring me. So, if you don't mind, me ask you a little bit about your your spiritual background. Then, since you uh, you briefly brought it up that you were raised Seventh Day Adventist, but if you kind of walk us through your journey, that's kind of a standard sort of jumping off point for us. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always loved the um, Krista Tippett's podcast on being or used to be speaking of faith back in the day, and that's usually her first question too. Yeah. Is you know, tell me about your what spiritual landscape you you grew up with. So I'm I grew up fifth generation Seventh Day Adventist. So long um, history in the family in that denominational world. Um, I actually grew up at a boarding school that my dad taught at. That was a church school. So that was my entire my entire context for growing up. I probably didn't meet people, you know, in a significant way who didn't share that background until after college, actually. So it, it, it definitely was, um, it was a subculture all, all on its own. And gradually, we started asking some questions. Um, specifically, our, our questions began because we were going to a little like refugee community uh, of people who didn't fit in traditional Adventism in San Francisco. And that was, this was after college and my husband and I lived there. And it was the first time that we became aware of LGBT Adventists. And we thought, wow, that must be a challenge. And it was this small little community where you really got to know people. 
you got to be known and know people. And it was a powerful experience for us at that time in our life. And we suddenly started to understand what it was like to be you know, LGBT and in this spiritual denomination that was such a deep subculture and had so many family ties and often work ties and all kinds of things that um, uh, it was a real challenge to to belong and feel like you could have authenticity. And that was about 2008 when a lot of legislative action started. That was the first big vote in California when they enshrined an anti-same-sex marriage law into the constitution. And so we just started getting involved in little ways. And then eventually... Uh, my husband was a documentary filmmaker and, you know, he said, you know, people, people don't change unless they know somebody's story. So that's what happened to us is we were in community with people and suddenly we're like, oh, wow, this, this is not like matching what I have thought or been taught. And, and you start to, to have those kind of conversations. And yeah, so that project, we thought it would be like a year project and it being a 10 year project. <laughs> So yeah, that that's that became a documentary feature documentary called Seventh Gay Adventists, which is it it screened in quite a few places around the LGBT film circuit, and then in about eighty different community screenings. Sometimes at churches, sometimes in community centers. It, so yeah, it was a privilege. It was a deep honor to be a storyteller in the LGBT Adventist community. That process eventually did lead to us deciding that it was not the space we wanted to raise our children in, really yeah, seeing sure. the institution not care about individual lives that were being harmed um, was part of us realizing that we were going to not be, you know, we weren't going to be raising sixth generation um, Adventists. So, and, you know, it was, that actually leads to the Dear Mama God, because one of the things that it just opened up a lot of things for me and, suddenly one of the things I really wanted to talk about is I don't connect to just a masculine concept of the divine. And I was raising daughters and I'd had an experience at the little community, the spiritual community in San Francisco that we were at where one verse in a song had been changed to have feminine pronouns. It was an old worship song. I have a maker she formed my heart even before my life began. Uh, my life at that, I'm getting those, <laughs> I'm getting the words wrong. But the, uh, the worship leader had changed just that one verse to she pronouns. And mm. I suddenly wept. Like I just sat down and started weeping. And I, it would have never even occurred to me how much before then my femaleness had not felt included in all the talk of we're all created in the image of God. It was um, one of those moments that I think art, you know, music, poetry, art, it can really get through to us on a different level. So I just suddenly had the embodied experience of the feminine being included in the concept of the divine. And it was such a profound shift. So that it took years for me to gradually start to um, occasionally use that language. I started doing a deep dive into the scholarship. I love reading, <laughs> reading scholarships. So I was reading, you know, feminists and womanists, theologians and scholars who have been writing about this for a long time. And I realized, and, you know, at that time in my life, I kind of at first needed the biblical permission that wouldn't necessarily be where I am today. But at that time, it was really helpful for me to know like, oh, this is not heretical. Like actually there's a lot of references throughout Jewish scriptures and Christian scriptures to all kinds of metaphors for the divine. But we, but we got stuck on this one due to patriarchy and power and all kinds of other things. And we started to, you know, we concretize the metaphor, which is when metaphors break down and stop working. So eventually I started praying with my older daughter to mother God. And she eventually taught her younger sister, who's almost seven years younger. So there's quite an age gap. So she taught her just on her own to pray. And she was praying to Mother God. And then the little one, because she was still a toddler and had a bit of a speech delay too, pronounced it, Dear Mother Dad. <laughs> super heart melting. <laughs> and then one day on her own, she just changed it to Mama God. You know, she calls me Mama, like she's still a Mama girl. And suddenly that be, it just 
clicked when she started praying to Mama God. And they were these beautiful, expansive prayers, just filled with delight and wonder. I think that's the beauty of being with children is the wonder of the world is still so fresh and awake. And so most of the little prayers in this book are actually ones that she is prayed. So in some ways I say that like, I'm more a curator of this project. <laughs> uh, you know, I sort of produced, I, I produced the book maybe. <laughs> so yeah, these are all like, you know, it's, Dear Mama God, thank you for the earth and all living things. Thank you for trees, for birds to build nests in. Thank you for creeks that flow and grow. And then like silly stuff, like thank you for hula hoops for dogs to jump through. And <laughs> just little, little, it's just a little voice of a child. And it just was so healing for me to hear my children praying to the divine and feminine form that I wanted to share that experience with others. Yeah, I mean, it's such, it's weird too, because it's not, it's not even remotely a stretch biblically, you know? And I, and, I, and I, first of all, I want to resonate with what you said about how, like, at one point in our lives, I think in, in one point, in what we would call deconstruction, some of us, and we did still seek that biblical permission, right? I need that to go, hey, okay, I haven't wandered too far afield here. Okay, and so I, I spent way too much time and energy, but it was part of my process, you know, going, okay, well, let me justify why I can say these things because, well, it's all in the Bible. I'm to a point now where I don't actually give a shit. I don't think I need permission <laughs> to to be loving and kind and include people. If the Bible told me not to be, I would still disregard it. But it's not even remotely unbiblical to have these these depictions or or even personifications of God as feminine. It's 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 replete throughout the Hebrew scriptures, right? Isn't Elohim? I mean, a feminine. Um, is, I think it's the rough translation of the Hebrew is the many-breasted one. Yeah, I love, I love, I love, <laughs> I love that one. And it so resonated with me when I was a young mother too. I was like, oh yes, I am giving life here. You know, this is like, and it's, it's always such a paradox to me that in so many conservative faith traditions, especially in the Christian um, world, you know, the Eucharist, the communion table is almost only presided over by men. And yet who among us actually knows what it is to say, this is my body, take, take and eat, be nourished. You know, it's, it's, it's nursing mamas who know, who know that I was, um, I was definitely in my thirties. I think I'd already had one child when I read something in one of Rachel Held Evans books. Um, I think, um, I think it was the inspired one, but I, I'm not positive talking about the number 40, you know, there's all kinds of references to the number 40 in scriptures of the ark, days in the wilderness. And she's the one that pointed out that the average length of human gestation, the average length of pregnancy is 40 weeks. I was like, of, co- of course it is. <laughs> you know, that's how long it takes to symbolically bring a new idea forth and to like birth a new thing. And I thought, how is it that I never grew up Hearing anything connected to those stories with 40, you know, we knew it was some sort of symbolic number, but yes, that also matches the length of a pregnancy, a human pregnancy. And I thought, well, that's because I only heard from men who weren't like as intimately (laughs) (laughs) familiar with these things. Well, and we were too concerned with proving the literalism of Noah's Ark to ever think that there might have been a metaphorical or an allegorical connection to sort of this incubation period of, hey, I need to, I need to, the Israelites wandered for what? 40 years. 40 years. Yeah. And, hello, and had to birth a new thing. And there's so much metaphorical. Jesus was in the wilderness being for 40 his days. Little, his vision quest. <laughs> right. So there's, a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because we, we actually had a lot of this discussion with folks this weekend at, the, at our conference about how much is lost when we insist upon a flat or literal reading of the Bible, how much less interesting the scriptures are when you, when you paint them into a corner and try to force that, that construct onto them. Um, it's so much more interesting. Especially the Genesis poems, you know, like yeah. there's such amazing poems, epic tales, and to force them into some sort of literal paradigm uh, does them yeah. such an injustice. Well, the only, re- the only thing that results from that is, you know, a batch of people who are like young earth creationists who spend way too much of their time insisting upon a specific literal creation period and having to deny science and having to deny, you know, having to, it's like, Wow, because you made that choice, here are the dominoes that have fallen. 
Oh yeah, I remember going to a science museum as a kid on a school field trip. This was um, a religious school field trip. And they told us beforehand, now you're going to see some dates on the signs. You're like, they don't know what they're talking about. Ignore them. (laughs) (laughs) Radiocarbon dating, not real. I was told it was a scam. I'm like, the hubris to walk into this place and just say like, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. No, no, no. My high school educated teacher, Nate, they know. It is wild, though. but so so. But the harm that get, that is done, I think that's on the other side of that. With the with the with the insistence upon you know assigning certain gender ideals to God, those are far more reaching, I think, and maybe absolutely. On I mean, a little maybe a little more subtle sometimes, although the results are not that subtle. But what's your take? I mean, well, I mean, I think when we're looking around right now at what is happening with some of the really scary anti-LGBT legislation, um, you know, trying to ban drag queens instead of assault <laughs> rifles. Right? You know, but we're keeping Good children God. safe. We're banning books and drag queens, uh, not guns. But, but, um, but arming children. Right. But when you look at those things, a lot of that has to do with our fear around gender. Like gender norms are often very strictly enforced and there can be extremely violent consequences to disrupting a society's idea of of gender, which is, of course, very societally based. You know, um, we just happen to be in a very strong binary um, over culture right now. And I do think the fact that we have just settled on the one metaphor of a masculine God, a war, a war, a warring, masculine, conquering, dominating, I will even sacrifice my child kind of God is absolutely part of what is like foundationally broken in, you know, I would say Western culture, but American Western culture in particular, it has tied up, it it has really worked well with capitalism to focus on this like individualistic, like, you know, just you matter. Right. Um, Rugged individual. Exactly. So we've made, we've made God that way as, as well. And anything that disrupts those gender patterns, I think is helpful. So I love, I love the God is trans talk that's going on right now. I saw a sticker from um, Illustrated Ministry, which does some great progressive children's curriculum. God, the original they, them. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Which I, I think is great. I do think like anything that disrupts our learned gender patterns, like that is something that I get asked a lot is people are like, well, can't we just go gender neutral? Like, let's, let's, let's just <laughs> stop gendering the divine. I mean, that's a step forward. Absolutely. But I would say we need, I don't know, 2000 years, give or take of a little bit of equity for the divine feminine. You know, we can't just skip over the feminine. What I notice is there's a number of institutions in particular that are like, well, we're just going to go with just God and we won't use a gender. And I'm like, well, the thing is, you you only said that when people started to use the feminine because it's the feminine that makes people most uncomfortable usually. And because of all these, you know, thousands of years that we've got of how this metaphor has been enforced through doctrine, dogma, and all this stuff, it will still land in our bodies as masculine un- unless we are doing the work to disrupt those gender patterns. So like I have that um, like activist aim, of course, behind the book. And yet what I love and watching this with my children is for them, it's just this beautiful, expansive, completely loving concept of a divine. Like my little one who's seven now, does not know yet that this is not the norm because in her mind, it is so logical that if you're going to have a creative force, (laughs) it's going to be a mama. Like who can give life and nurture life? It's a mama. So in her mind, that is just completely normal. Um, And I love that for her. And I'm also have this ache of like, of course, she's going to discover at some point that that is like not the usual everywhere. Wow. There's just, it, it, reminisce, it reminds me a little bit of, if you get a little bit far, you know, way back to uh, uh, when William Paul Young wrote The Shack. Mm-hmm. You know, if you need evidence that this is going to ruffle feathers when he portrays God as Papa, but still, and then has him personified as a black woman, man, oh man. I mean, all hell broke loose. And then I couldn't decide if people were more racist or misogynistic. Which which they, one is they it? They go are together. You, or, or are you just both? 
I mean, are you really more offended by the by the femininity of God? Are you are you really bothered by the blackness of God, or are you just a bigot at your very core? And it was to me that was one small step. I love what you said that that there has to be some some equanimity given here, right? And we we the same thing. I would say with like people who when it comes to race relations, like well, you know, like well, who claim they just don't see color? Well, can't we just get to a colorless? Well, no. I mean, not yet. No, I mean, I, I you, and you can't just... color is beautiful. There's nothing wrong with color. Yeah, why would you just want to ignore that, that? Only one part, one is is valid. There's another really. There's a good book um, that I think is great for an adult to like deep dive into this. Well, there's several, but Dr. Christina Cleveland wrote a book last year. Yeah, God is a black woman. God is a black woman. So love yeah. It. And I love how she runs white male God together, all lowercase, like that's mm-hmm. her term, white male God. Yeah, so definitely we, it, the racism and the misogyny, and they usually go together. They're <laughs> her story of running around trying to find all the black Madonnas was, was pretty awesome. I mean, it was, we actually had a, we, we were very privileged to have her on the podcast a while back and got to talk to her about oh, that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, um, she, yeah I so, love her work. The other so author who I always like to... Um, bring forward is Dr. Will Gaffney, Reverend, Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney, who um, has written several books, Womanist Midrash, as well as a whole series of lectionaries, a woman's lectionary for the whole church. And um, she's a womanist. She's a Hebrew scholar. She's a professor. And she let us license her translation of Job 33.4 for the front of Dear Mama God. I had asked her, um, part of her work is what she calls um, bringing the repressed feminine forward in the very grammar. Um, And so I had asked her for a suggestion of one of the verses that, you know, especially, um, you know, resonated well um, when you did that. And this was her suggestion, one of her suggestions. And again, I wept when I read it because it's just, I'd never never felt this. The spirit of God, she has made me and the breath of the nursing God, she gives me life. And um, she has a lot of scholarship on this um, that people can read online. She actually has a couple videos up. Um, there's like a Theo Ed conference. It's sort of like TED talks, but for theological nuggets. Oh, okay. she, has a 20, she has a 20 minute one called um, The God Who Transcends Gender. That's really a lot about this. And part of her argument is that the way the actual grammar of the original texts um, has she in there, you would, you know, if you went to use the pronoun, you would need to use she, her. But the way a lot of translators over, um, over time managed to suppress that was just using proper nouns for the spirit. So we almost always will see the spirit of God. But anytime you see that, if that took a pronoun, it would be she she, her. So any of those verses, she will bring the grammar forward. And now, you know, grammar doesn't mean necessarily, certainly doesn't mean anything biologically, might not even mean anything theologically, but the thing is neither did the he's, but we got stuck on that. Right, right. I have a friend who's a budding, burgeoning Hebrew scholar, and he makes that point. You know, he's like, listen, Hebrew is a, is a, is a language with feminine and masculine nouns. Um, we don't necessarily assign gender based on that. I studied Spanish in high school and college and same. I mean, there's, there's no rhyme or reason necessarily to the gender assignment of nouns. However, like you said, when there were gender, gender neutral options, they opted for the he as often as humanly possible, right? So there's, there's your bias that gets inserted. And because it was done so well and for so long, um, there are lots of people like us that around, you know, 2000 plus thousand, you know, however many thousand years later, who that does not even occur to us that we might have been a little hoodwinked by that process, right? Well, so many people just don't even, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I've had well-meaning, loving relatives tell me like, well, just read the Bible. It's it's quite clear for, for any number of questions, you know? And I want to say like, well, it's all which, in there. which translation and where are you getting, you know, what, what are you bringing to the text and all of that. Um, but I think a lot of people just, it, it, it brings them great comfort. And yeah. it's, it's yeah. hard, you know, you, you've been through that process as I'm sure your listeners have. When those dominoes start to fall, it is not a pleasant process. So I understand why people avoid it. It is. It can, it can create some discomfort. But I want to say one more thing before I, and I feel like I've monopolized John, so I'm going to kick this over to you in a second. But you said something about, you know, when you read these verses and, and, and there's been a disruption to the language, it, it, it hits differently, right? We, we, had a, we had a gentleman named Terry Wildman on a while back who did a, 
was the lead translator on the First Nations translation of the Bible. And he read a piece of scripture. And I think John and I both had the same experience of like hearing it for the first time. Like, oh my gosh, now instead of this sort of patriarchal God, we get, you know, the great spirit who has done this. And, and he just read these, let me read you this little bit of, and it, man, it was, it, it was very disruptive for me in a very positive way because I want to be disrupted. And I think maybe that's part of the issue is if, if you're comfortable, the disruption can be a problem. If you're sort of looking to be disrupted <laughs> or needing it, then it can be like a, it can be a welcome respite from Absolutely. the normal. Yeah. Pray, praying to mama God has given me prayer back. Oh yeah. Wow. It was something that I didn't even realize I was really missing until I could do that. And it just really shifted things. It, it helped soften some things in me that had become cynical and hard edged because of our experience with, you know, the corporate church. We see this though throughout the Bible and throughout these, like you say, these different translations, right? And it seems like translation built on translation built on translation has done a very good job of burying the lead in a, in a, in a way. And something as simple as, you know, changing a word that's when it was given to me to, for a man would be deacon, right? And then it, uh, given to a woman, the same, the same word is now called, it, they use the word helper. Right. So they just say they change the translation because there's no way a woman could be a deacon or a teacher or a preacher or any of that. So they have to, even though it's the same exact word and it's not one of these feminine masculine words, it's a word that means deacon. And then they had to take this, this guy, Jesus, who a lot of ways shows a feminine side of, of a masculine person, right? The way that Jesus enters this world, the way, the way he preaches and talks, the way he brings people around him in a mothering way. So the Western evangelical church had to masculinize, masculine, how would you say that? Make him masculine. That, that works. So now we have these pictures, right? Of this, this very muscular Jesus draped in an American flag oh, and yeah. all that BS. We, Rambo Jesus. Absolutely. We, we, yeah, we, we wrapped flags and guns uh, around yeah, him. Yeah. You know, one in my first book, um, Holy Troublemakers and Unconventional Saints, one of the profilees, it's, it's a book, it's like an anthology of people of faith who work for love and justice in their corner of the world. And one of the profilees, Kate Christensen Martin, likes to say Jesus was a man who mothered the world. And I love that. And you're so right, John, that Jesus's <laughs> presence and energy has what we would think of as very feminine qualities. And, you know, one of our challenges is we've assigned gender to feminine and masculine when really we, we all have both. But we have so privileged the masculine traits, you know, and we've compensated, you know, you're going to get more money if you assert these certain style of things. But all genders benefit from us including the feminine as, as, as positive, as, you know, as valuable. And I think it's very important to um, claim that language specifically that, yeah, Jesus mothered and any, any gender can mother. Like it is not necessarily specific, specific to, um, to women. And I think that, um, you know, the women took notice of Jesus being a different type of man too. Like there's a reason why women were so comfortable in his presence, which you know, he had to seem really unusual. The time he took with people, the care he gave to children, um, to the sick, to, you know, to those who were normally outcasts. Like, those are, those are qualities that we need to remember. Like, I don't really have a quarrel with Jesus. I have a, I have a quarrel <laughs> with what... <laughs> I have a yeah. quarrel with Paul. I have a quarrel with Paul. And I have a quarrel with what, you know, the politicized church eventually did to Jesus, but yeah. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it struck me as really strange. It was several years ago. I don't know if you know who Mark Driscoll is, but one of those sort of fire-breathing evangelical... Yes. Unfortunately. <laughs> I do. That was sort of his comment. He'd, like, he didn't like Jesus. Like, he was like, or at least his, the version of Jesus that he, you know, he was like, why well, I can't have 
you know, your diaper wearing feminist little wimpy Jesus. I, I can't worship a Jesus that I could beat up, essentially. And I'm like, well, you do have a Jesus that the, you know, we did beat up. That's kind of the core of the story of, of the Christian faith is, 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 is a God who allowed himself to be murdered. That sounds like, at least in your view, kind of a wussy God. Yeah, that's the challenge with the nonviolent approach is it actually takes great strength to do that. Yeah, but Mark's, Mark's too simple to see that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, we, I think simple is a kind word. We don't need to go down that track. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're raising kids. I raised kids. The conversations I had with, my, with all of my kids, but especially my sons, was exactly that. Anybody can retaliate. It takes no strength of character. It takes no actual strength at all to return in kind what you've been given. So someone says something mean and you say it right back. Okay. So I, I, I taught my boys not to engage in physical violence if it was, if it was at all possible. It didn't mean to lay down and be someone's doormat, but it, you know, but it took a great deal of strength to, to not follow that path, right? Which is the path that most Americans feel entitled to. And, you know, and we have an ex-president who personified that. You know, I remember posting something online and when he, number 45, whatever his name was, um, was running. And I was like, dear Christians, you know, like, and I, and I just pulled something out of one of his books. And it was simply, you know, it was essentially, if somebody hurts me, I hurt them like many times over. Like I, like I don't, and I, and I wish I had the exact quote, but essentially it was, I'm going to get you back way worse than you got me. That's just the way I do business. And I'm like, wake up. Christianity, especially white evangelicalism in America, is so far off of like, oh, if you read, the Beati- yeah, you read the Beatitudes, you're like, aha, can this be the Jesus that you claim? <laughs> you know, one of the things that shifted for me um, as part of my deconstruction process and eventual reconstruction process, which is always ongoing, and it's something that bothered me for years, but I didn't even know the language for it, is, you know, substitutionary atonement theory, like deeply troubled me. And I remember when my eldest was about three, she was still in a little like back carrier thing. And I was walking around the city and it was almost Easter and she was seeing some decorations out and she asked what Easter was about. And I was like, oh, oh yes, here we go. Um, new, new life, bunnies, chocolates, you know, <laughs> I had no idea what to say, but I knew I was not going to pass on what I think is a deeply violent like idea of substitutionary atonement. And it it took me a while before I realized like, oh, wow, there, this is like a whole field. Like there's many, many theories about this. And, and like now I've landed on um, no, no atonement, actually. Like I don't think Jesus, I think Jesus died because he upset the status quo, the power system, and and he was unwilling to retaliate, you know, to your, to your discussion. He actually was like, no, I will die before I will turn you know, return violence. And I think Herb Montgomery, who's somebody in my first book, says that Jesus, he now sees the the cross as an interruption of Jesus's ministry, not the, not the point of it. And I thought, you know, that's a really, really incredible shift. Um, and I also think if you, if you bring Mama God into this, a divine feminine, like it is so much harder to imagine a mother deciding that the, the solution yeah, like, is to sacrifice like this is how her in a yeah. Yeah. When you make that shift, like there's many things that shift when you can actually try to conceptualize. And you know, my, my eldest started painting pictures of, um, of, of mama God when she was like eight. And then this is supposed this, uh, say, I can send you a link if you want. I think I have it on Instagram somewhere. Yeah, please do. And she, she felted me this mama God Mm. last year for Christmas and called it. She's got the whole world in her hands. She's like a, she's a black mama God with um, holding, holding the world with the sun and her back is turning into a forest. And uh, it's one of those things that it's been long enough that I'm like, Oh, the kids are okay. You know, that was, that's the big stress at the beginning of deconstruction. If you have young children. Um, And I think especially for moms, because in our society, we have tasked faith formation generally to women, you know, it's women's work. It's the only place where you're going to find in some places, women doing any ministries in the children's division. <laughs> you're not, you're not wrong. So oh my gosh. I, it was a huge, huge bit of like angst for me. Like, how are my kids going to be okay? If, if I don't raise them the way that five generations of my family have raised their children, you know, like it's a huge loss. I didn't have that much stress because my kids were 
in their late teens or grown when I started really kind of hitting this stuff pretty hard. Now what they're mad about is I'm a much chiller dude than I was when I raised them. And I'm telling them like, hey, when you have your own kids, like don't do the stupid shit that I did to you. And they're like, well, where, where was this guy? I'm like, well, I grew. I'm sorry. 19 and 20 year olds probably shouldn't have kids. I know. Um, I'm, I apologize. If we didn't have hand, purity culture, we, we would just they, have sex and be okay with it and not have to get that's, married. That's exact. Oh man, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, like I had to get married. I mean, we were horny teenagers. What were we supposed to do? Go to hell? No, we had to get married so we could have lots of sex. <laughs> it's true. It was really funny. It was, uh, I don't know if you know who Karen Shock is, if you don't need to meet her, um, but she, she, she wrote a book called Too Much and Not Enough. But her, her, her history is exactly that. You know, it's her being raised up in church and, and being told for her entire life that she was not good enough to do any of these things that she felt called to do. You know, that she felt deep inside her bones, like she was made to do this. And then to have her entire church culture lean away from that and, and discourage her from that. She's my age now, and she's just now starting to come into this place of having a voice, uh, of finding her voice and being able to express it. And I, man, it, it breaks my heart that there's women all over the country whose voices have been subdued simply because yeah. of this. Well, one of the original books, um, well, I shouldn't say original, but classic books um, is by Dr. Elizabeth Johnson called She Who Is, and um, definitely one of the um, foundational works for all this conversation about feminine divine and, and challenging the patriarchy in the church. And one of the things she talks about is that when you have limited your idea of the divine to one specific gender and, you know, to, to Christina Cleveland's point, often race as well. Um, you've limited how the like holy imagination and mystery can be let loose in the world. You know, like we, we don't know what will come when we're free to contribute and imagine and uh, yeah, participate. Yeah, what a concept, right? When, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I have a question too. So John and I are, we were born we were born, you know. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> I, I, sure. I hadn't reached that conclusion yet. No. I'm not sure why I paused at that particular moment, but you know, we, were, we were born uh, young black children. Um, to quote Steve Martin, <laughs> no, we were we were born and raised in mostly sort of non-denominational Protestant evangelical, by sort of charismatic leaning. You know, I mean, like Foursquare is a denomination, but okay. just barely, kind of. Does that make sense? Um, I feel like so, most non-denominational churches at their root, when you look at their website, are actually Southern Baptist. But <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that going on. They just don't want to. They just don't want to have to like like that. What they what they don't want is accountability. That's the reason most of these guys are non-denominational. It's not. That would be my guess. I mean, it's, it it just allows them to go off and do what they want and have no one say, "Hey, that doesn't jive with what we do here." Unless you're Rick Warren, in which case you can get a big enough church and do what the hell you want anyway. And the Southern Baptist Convention, all they can do is say. Stop it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's the guy in San Antonio? Uh, Max Lucado, who is not a very good Church of Christ follower, really, but they can't do squat about it because he's just too popular. I mean, he's just written too many books and people just love him. So Church of Christ doesn't have music, like doesn't have musical instruments in their worship services. Max Lucado does. I'm like, how's he do that? Oh, because he's Max freaking Lucado. But all of that was to say, our exposure to Seventh-day Adventism is small, right? Uh, in fact, the first guest we had on who was from that denomination, it took me about 10 minutes to realize that's what he was saying. <laughs> I mean, what is this Adventist thing? You, I, well, we always called it Seventh. It was always Adventist, you know? So... It's one of those. It's one of those shibboleths. If you're, if you're inside, you put the emphasis on one syllable. If you're not, you do another. Right. Is that how you know, right? You've uttered the shibboleth. We know, oh, you're, okay, you're on the inside because you say Avenus. No, it's, shif it's shifting now. It's really either Is either it? or. But <laughs> I grew up in the day when it was, yes, Adventist. Adventist, okay. <laughs> so theologically, I know there's some, I know there's some fringe sort of theological issues. You know, I know that, you know, obviously the church on Saturday thing was a big deal for some reason. I don't know. I was like, oh my God, they have church on Saturday. Um, but there's also... <laughs> Like a strong contingent of vegetarianism, right? And there's some yes. things. I mean, I'm still I'm still vegetarian, actually. That that part stuck. Okay, well, not, not not for the same reasons. It's just I'd grown up 
that way. And yeah. I had no desire to eat meat. And you know, you look at the environment, what's going on right now. And you're like, oh, I don't really see, see a need to shift to this one. <laughs> yeah. Versus, you know, going to a certain Baptist barbecue after church and it's just nothing but meat and there's like maybe one vegetable. But <laughs> but as far as things like atonement theories and things like that, biblical inerrancy, uh, does, does, the, does that denomination lean more conservative in that respect? Are they really on about the penal substitutionary stuff and there is the definitely Bible the inerrant word of God? No, or is, so Av- Adventism grew out of Methodism predominantly. You know, it actually was, it was a part of that um, Millerite movement back in um, like the whole Jesus is coming and we've calculated the dates, you know, one of those times. What happened, you know, most people after that was clearly wrong because they were still on this earth just slunk back to their churches and were like, well, well, that was a bit foolish, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the people who became Adventists were a small group of those Millerites. And um, one of them, Ellen White, supposedly had a vision. Um, she's actually, I have a lot of respect for her, although I don't believe her writings are necessarily divinely inspired. Um, she had been hit in the head with a large rock as a child and had like probably had some head trauma, actually. But I also think it was a time period when like young women had visions, like it wasn't an uncommon thing to, you know, it was culturally acceptable. And eventually they decided that they hadn't been wrong. It was just a celestial event, not an earthly event. Right. This oh, is, gotcha. This is such a clever, clever tactic. <laughs> it is. Completely unfalsifiable. Of course that's what exactly. happened. Exactly. <laughs> so but really the DNA of Adventism is actually, while we were, you know, wide, widely, um, ridiculed for being wrong, we really weren't. So like there's a strong DNA of like we're the rightest of the right <laughs> in there. I like it. And and there's there's a lot of flavors of Adventism, like anything yeah, else. Yeah, I would imagine. My, my husband grew up in a bit more strongly conservative side of it. I grew up in the academic world, which does exist. And so it is more open. Um, my dad was an English teacher. Like we read fiction in our home and that was kind of a big deal. Oh, wow. <laughs> My parents drank coffee, with, like real coffee, which was, you know, also a little bit hush-hush. We occasionally went out to eat on Sabbath, our family, which was usually, an, an, um, yeah, not a good thing. My, In fact, I still remember the pastor talking to my sister and I when we were probably like six and eight. You know how like adults will sometimes try to talk to the kids to get to the other adults? Yeah, exactly. So he was like, Oh, you're you're going out to eat after church. You know, um, that's really breaking the Sabbath day. And <laughs> my sister's a very logical. She she was a math teacher eventually, so she's a very logical person. And um, she's like, "Well, why?" He's like, "Well, you know, you're paying." And she eventually, he, she said, well, don't you go to the school cafeteria? Because <laughs> a lot of the faculty would go to the school yeah. cafeteria after church. He's like, well, we don't pay then. We just sign our name and they charge us later. <laughs> oh, so that's how you get out of it. <laughs> My little sister said, oh, it's okay then because we use a credit card. They, pay, they charge us later too. <laughs> And <laughs> later too, it's all it's all gonna be okay. It's all gonna be okay. <laughs> you know what? And I laugh, but to tell you the truth, I I did love the experience of growing up with a community wide Sabbath practice. Like it's really we're such a busy hustle culture now that I do think that Sabbathine, um, obviously done for different reasons than like the reasons I was raised for is still a really restorative practice. And it was actually in writing my um, first book, Holy Troublemakers and Unconventional Saints interviewing Rabbi Danya Rutenberg, who was who's Jewish, but was raised pretty secular and didn't come to um, observant practices um, until she was older. And she was talking about how like having the hard boundary is really helpful. And she's definitely one. She's like, listen, of course, some things need to be revised as we have better understandings of justice issues and various things. But there is a gift in thousands of years of tradition trying to help you know how to observe this practice so that it can be the gift that it's meant to be. And she really helped me step into harder, like hard boundaries. And, um, you know, I'm not a legalist about it, but I eventually talked to my husband. It was during the pandemic, early stage when we were just completely overwhelmed with information and screen time. And I was like, can we please take a technology Sabbath once a week? And um, there was wailing and gnashing of teeth in the household. And now we're pretty firm about it. And we don't have the like, oh, but if it's a 
if it's a nature movie, we could like watch it. Like, you know, we just have said we turn all the devices off. I have like a dumb phone that like we can be reached at or call. And, um, you know, if we're on the road, it doesn't work. Or if there's too many things to coordinate, it doesn't work. But, but I love it now. And my kids love it. Like they, they aren't losing their parents to screens for, for 24 hours, even as much as we try not to be on, on them too much. So it's one of those things where I find it ironic that I would really be considered a heretic by most Adventist church standards these days. And yet we kind of keep more of a Sabbath. <laughs> Because turning off devices is like a radical thing to do in this world right now. And I like my kids growing up seeing that permission. And I, I don't let my, my, um, my older daughter uh, do homework either. I'm like, actually, I want you to take a pause. I want you to take a break. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a funny little irony that in some ways I keep more of a Sabbath now. <laughs> I mean, I like it. I mean, I, I, I think there's, there's logic to it. And I can't remember who it was. We, we had somebody on recently, John, who talked about this as well had written a book about work and when to rest. And yes, yeah, Sabbathine is becoming quite, quite a conversation topic. And so, I'm yeah. terrible at remembering. John remembers. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. But it, I, but it doesn't have to be, like you said, I, I, like, I like that idea. It doesn't have to be rigid. I think that's one of the things that when Jesus says uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right, was the idea that you've turned this into a whole system. Like you've taken this thing that was supposed to be a blessing and permission to stop for a minute and breathe and collect yourself and you and then you've actually complicated that to the point where it's work to figure out how to stop working like which things can we do and can't we do and when can and then trying to find some you know some clever people trying to find the loopholes around the things we can do silliness i mean when it so like you said i, I if it's flexible obviously life is life and sometimes it's just not always possible to observe those rigidly but yeah there's there's obviously a lot of sense in that we can work ourselves into an early grave if we want to but we probably should maybe take a beat and uh, stop it for a minute. Yeah. I think, think we're, I think we're seeing that all the online-ness is not, it's not that great for any of us and our kids especially are not doing that well. No, with it. it's not. Yeah. But that was, you know, the weird thing about COVID was, you know, trying to find a silver lining and all of that. I was laid off for a year and I stayed home and we learned to be okay with, with not having some place to be every second of the day and not having our whole day just, you know, um, scheduled out entirely. And it was, it was really creepy at first. And then it was hard to go back to work. <laughs> it was like, wait a minute, I'm not going to see... My wife and I were like, we saw each other every day. What a, what, what a concept. I mean, we spent time together and we didn't... You know, we went on walks and we <laughs> had all this time to kill. I'm like, okay. After we, after we settled into that routine, it was tough to break it again. You know, and, and, and even now I'm like, you know, I don't want a pandemic to come back, but damn it... Um, some excuse to slow down would be good. I just thought it was interesting because I was going to go back to something you guys were talking about, about the, the denomination that we went to and the denomination that you went to, how a lot of these denominations have a person who helped start it up, and it, that person's a woman. Faith Center was started by a woman. Amy Simple McPherson um, founded the Foursquare denomination. And she was a, a traveling evangelist in the 20s, I think. But then the church does what it does all very well. It pushes them to the side. And so like in Faith Center, a woman can preach as long as she's married to the preacher. <laughs> like she, you couldn't have a, you could, a woman couldn't come in and be the head, the head pastor of a four-square church. But if she had no, she, she could be the co-pastor. Right. But yeah, she could be a co-pastor. Uh, and, but I see this a lot where the women are pushed aside and put into these like pseudo roles of leadership to appease something. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's right. so blatantly. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I've mentioned this before too, is like, I, I've, I've always thought it was interesting and a little bizarre that one of the things they would allow women to do is teach Sunday school. I mean, if you're really, if this is, if this is the, if this is this hard stand you're going to take is that women can't be preachers and they shouldn't be teaching but then you're going to give them the permission to mold the minds of the young ones and potentially <laughs> mess them up, mess them <laughs> up. So I, I think I, I wish more women would, would have, because uh, I had a lot of women Sunday school teachers, but you know, they, they were staying in line, right? Because they were told to and they had to. Um, I just wish, I wish that I had at least one Sunday school teacher who was a woman and says, okay, well, I'm going to tell you some things that, don't really fit with everything else. It would have, I think I would have, 
the journey that I had to go on to, to, to get to the point where misgendering the divine, would, I, I think I, I think I would have figured it out sooner because I left the church really young. I left the church when I was like 18, 19 years old and stayed away from the church for a very, very long time. You, th- you think I would have been able to break out of that mold, but it was indoctrinated into us so much that God is, you know, is that old white beard man in oh, the yeah. sky. You, white. you see the Sistine Chapel image. Like they've actually done studies. If you say the word God, even if you're not really of a, like if you, even if you're actively trying to resist that, like that is the first thing that comes into most Westerners' minds is that Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, bearded white dude. Because I am a little bit twisted, uh, mine is actually now the Monty Python God from uh, Monty <laughs> Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, that's, that's the first. Awesome. But again, it's, you know, the big white beard, old, old white man, right? It's still that, but a little bit more comedy to it, I guess. But I guess what I'm getting at is that a book like this is such... Um, I'm sorry, I'm holding up like the world can see it. The book like Dear Mama God is such an amazing step into just starting to break that mold, right? In a very, very simplistic, but yet beautiful way. Yeah, it's just a little children's book. It's just a little child prayer of wonder. And yet I love that it's so simple. And the artwork, I mean, I'm just in love with Jillian Gamble's artwork. Um, It's stunning. And so it's just this beautiful, gentle, nourishing experience, quite quite joyful, really. And yet it's also quite radical. And I love that you can like have this really radical act that you're just doing as a little bedtime story or something. Like it doesn't it doesn't have to seem all that revolutionary, but any any kid who grew up with this also being a part of their vocabulary, I think will have an easier time um, questioning some other things and just stepping into expansiveness in general. Yeah, I think it's 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 a first step in giving permission to ask those questions and hopefully uh, have people around them who will be honest in answering them. Unfortunately, Nat and I growing up in in a very very specific church, we didn't get those answers. You know, they you know, they they weren't forthcoming. But I think if if you want to talk about the pluses to the internet and this ability to, to connect with people of all over the world, I'd say one of the biggest pluses is that you do get to see people who aren't like you, that don't, that don't pray like you, that don't, that, and, and, and you can connect with them and hopefully you get to meet them someday in person, but at least you get to, you know, read books by people who are completely different than you. And that's, that's, I think the biggest plus to, Social media. I mean, social media has a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And, and we were watching it kind of implode on itself, you know, almost daily now. But some of my best friends that I have connected with have been through social media and we still connect and we still talk. Yeah. And actually, the artist, Jillian Gamble, and I first met via Facebook. Somebody introduced us. Um, so I think, yeah, there's absolutely the upsides to it. I was just talking to somebody the other day, um, and this is language taken from one of the you know modern critics of what's going on with social media. And I'm, his name's not coming to me. It's, it was in an Atlantic piece. And basically, he said, when the shift happened between it being a social network to being social media is a big difference. And if you kind of think about that, it's true. When it was just this way to meet people, almost an organic living contact book, it was different than when we were all expected to be our individual broadcasting platforms and, you know, and then consuming that kind of content all the time too. Um, that's, it's really when the money got involved and the selling, selling stuff always seems to mess it up. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I was, I, I was, a. Uh... I was on staff at a little church in California when I first even got on. I've been on MySpace because that was the thing when I, you know, so, but MySpace never really kind of did it for me, but, and I couldn't get my head around Twitter. Never, I still can't get my head around Twitter really. But anyway, so Facebook sort of was a thing. And it, the only thing that drew me to it was this ability, and I was in my probably late thirties, I guess at the time, was this ability to, to, to connect with people I'd lost contact with. And I'd spent many years in the military and I was like, I had lost touch with all these friends and I'd, all of a sudden, I'm finding them online. I'm like, okay, that's the utility of this is I get to go, hey, where's that guy that I was stationed at Fort Meade with in, you know, 1997 that we haven't talked in 10 years? Um, that was great. Fast forward to now, um, I'm, you know, on Facebook, I'm a label, the digital creator. What the hell are you talking about? I post pictures and memes and maybe a, write an occasional, you know, little jaunty post, but 
But yeah, you're right. So it shifted from this networking site of like, hey, let's reconnect with some friends and family and stuff. And all of a sudden, now we all have to be producing content all the time. It's like, God Lord. Well, I think that's what's been so harmful. And you know, I have a 14 year old daughter, so I am like keenly aware of some some of the studies and research coming out about just how difficult a time teen girls, in particular, are having in this moment. Um, and she doesn't have a phone or social media yet. And um, at this, like, she was dying for one uh, a couple years ago, and now it's been long enough, and we held the line long enough that she can see a huge difference in her friends who have really just been sucked into TikTok and Snapchat and that all the time. Um, and she's like, oh, wow, my mental health is so much better. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you for not letting me <laughs> have a phone. Um, and I think that the issue for for young people is they are now having to... They're, they're having to constantly be presenting a persona of themselves and... And then because of the way that it's all about, you know, the likes and the algorithms and the feedback, um, they're starting to see themselves through that like um, external lens of judgment of like, well, oh, how did this look? And how am I saying this? Like, and it's such a volatile period of figuring out who you are. Anyway, you know, identity in teen years is such a big deal that adding that layer of like the constant external, um, I, ha- I have to present this version of myself um, is just something that I don't think we... Um, like, I don't think our brains are, are, are meant to be doing it. It's interesting to me that gaming has proven to be less damaging, um, probably because you're an active participant versus... As, and more boys game. And it also can have that social component where they're... they're they might be in different spaces, but they're live talking to each other. So it's still, it still has an interactive, active, um, compo- you know, agency to it. Whereas um, the way that girls are using social media is much more of a consuming and it's, it's, it's a more passive um, experience. So yeah, I'm, that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah. Uh, I actually, I, I hope to work on that project next actually, is I'm, I would like to start publishing a magazine for um, tweens and young teens, that is a lot about trying to um, look for meaning and ways to be in the world that don't involve screens. Um, I'm not a total Luddite, but I, I really think we need much stronger guardrails than, um, than we have at the moment. I mean, it's only... I was pregnant with my eldest daughter when the first iPhone came out. So like we're 15 years into this, which is like such a drop in human evolutionary history. Like there's no way our brains are like capable <laughs> of like the changes that have happened. My my youngest son is 23. That's not, yeah, okay, he's 23. And uh, see, that's how old I am. My youngest is 23. I have grandkids, your kid's age. Um, but the, uh, but he doesn't, rem- I mean, there's, there's, there's not a time in his life when he wasn't computer savvy, you know, that he didn't even, so I, I think back to my lifetime of being born in the early 70s and, and from, and going from, 13-inch black and white TV screens and rotary dial phones to dial-up internet to flip phones and those kinds of things onto... I, I mean, it's been a... It feels like like a, like a... Just like a supercharged evolution in the space of like 40 years um, to where we're, we're all holding, you know, computers in our... You know, we have computers in our pockets that we're... You know, Anyway, they're just they're they're way beyond even the the, the, the technology that put us on the freaking moon, right? I mean, like, so you're right. I'm not sure that we've 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 kept up with all of that change. So yeah, maybe maybe uh, something to dial that back a little bit would be would be useful. Yeah, well, you know, one of I mean, Mama God and Mama Earth are pretty similarly connected for me, and like, and I know it's part of me living in this region of the world where there is abundant um, woods around me now, and I just think you know, humans really, um, most of our time has been where the natural world, the more than human world was everything to us. And I really, and you know, our technology, our technological boom of the last couple decades is pretty much the opposite of that. And it's not that it's not that they're not useful pieces of it. Um, it's certainly helpful in certain ways and especially connecting to other people who, you know, you might not otherwise have a chance to connect with and recognize like, oh, I'm, I'm not the only person who has this question or, or this perspective or this experience in the world. So like, I don't, 
I don't dismiss that there's some of those values um, to it. And yet, I really think we have to get um, like the the earth is a deeply nourishing, um, you know, part of uh, being in communion with the earth has been deeply beneficial to my spiritual health and well-being for sure. I agree. I love it. So Dear Mama God is the book that is out now. You should buy it. You should get it. Um, I'm sure it's sold wherever fine books are sold. Um, it's a kid's book, but I, I read, I mean, I flipped through. I mean, it's not just for kids, man. There's some deep, deep, profound thoughts. I think there's times when adults need beautiful picture books too. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, yeah, you can find it lots of places, um, at dearmamagod.com. We have free, we have free shipping if you order two books, uh, which is not true on Amazon. No, it's and, not. Uh, and there's also some um, cool stuff. Like I have a whole piece up there called um, Why Mama God? Like why we need the divine and feminine form. And that includes a ton of resources at the end. Like I have a recommended reading list for both kids books and adult books for anybody who wants to like do a deeper dive into this whole conversation. I love it. I love it. So yeah. So buy one for yourself. Buy one to give as a gift. Hell, buy a dozen and gift them to your whole family this, this holiday season. Uh, absolutely. And you know what? I always say we're a nonprofit. The press is a nonprofit. And you can oh, awesome. always say, I need this book, but I don't have the resources. And like, yeah, any, that's, that's a big part of their mission is making sure anybody who wants it can have it as a resource. Very cool. Well, I tell you what, I have really, really thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for, for hanging Thank out and spending the time and putting up with all of our technological glitches. They knew you were going to talk anti-technology, and so the technology gods came after you. So you tend to blame it on me. I'm actually thinking it was kind of your fault. But, um. You got me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas, Register today at thisisils.org.